Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, Imagineers. I don't know about you, but I'm just about ready for another dose of digital goodness. And I know just the right bloke to dish it out in bloody big spoonfuls. Matthew Dickerson, I've got a feeling you've got some medicine for us today. What's gotten you thinking this week? Well, James, it's really interesting. We have talked before in lockdown how communication is so important and people being connected. Yeah. One of the big things that's really been evident this week is that normally we're talking to some clients about satellite connectivity. And if you've got nothing else, then satellite's okay. But they've gotten used to the idea that when they're making phone calls using Wi-Fi calling and you get that latency, that delay with a satellite call, people are almost at the point now they're making those calls with the over at the end of it, <laughs> like a two-way radio. Like the old CB. Because when you start to talk to someone that you don't realise they're on a satellite connection – you think they haven't heard you. You say, hi, how are you going, Jimmy? No answer. And you think, oh, I'd better say it again. Did you hear me? But they've heard you and then they start answering and then yeah, they're answering while you're answering and little delay. it yep. goes all over the place. So that delay is very frustrating. But some of the people we've been speaking to over the last week, that's been the big issue. How do I get off this satellite system for my phone calls? Because it's so frustrating talking to someone. But in some of those areas, that's the only option they've got, unfortunately. And you've almost got to retrain the way you have a conversation. Uh-huh. And you've also got to make sure you actually make it very definite what you're saying. You finish the sentence at a definite point. Not so much that you say over, like on a two-way radio, <laughs> but almost the same where you end the sentence and you don't trail off and leave it in the air. You just stop it. All these subliminal cues that we need, yeah. That's exactly right. So people that are trying to work on those satellite connections because they're at home and in lockdown are actually changing the way they speak, changing the way they talk to people, and then trying to get their clients that they're talking to to almost change the way they're talking as well. So it's a really <laughs> challenging concept, which then they'll throw out the window when they go back into the office again. The evolution of communication. That's right. Yeah. Well, I see you've got some absolute bangers for us this week, Matt. I believe that's how the young folk would put it, absolute bangers. You're going to give us an update on how people at Nintendo headquarters have been suffering through the pandemic, and I, I say suffering in inverted commas there. You've got some great news for sufferers of type 1 diabetes, and there's a new solution to running out of charge for your EV. Apparently... We're going to just change the battery. Let's get started, though, with a story for people who like to get their tech in their face. And I mean literally 140 inches is a whole lot of inches of television, particularly if you're talking about television screen, folks, 140 inches. But that sort of screen needs a fair sort of a wall space. And not everyone's got that. Matt, there's got to be a better way around this, surely. There's got to be a better way. We have talked about TVs a little bit. I don't mean to talk about TVs a lot. We've talked about a 1,000-inch TV, which probably isn't going to fit in most lounge rooms. And even a 140-inch, the height of a 140-inch diagonal, is getting to the stage where you haven't got much room left above and below the TV. It's probably about a 1.8-metre height of a TV. It's a big rectangle there. It's a big rectangle. So when you put that in your lounge room, that might get to the point where... I would actually have to agree with my wife when she says that TV's too big, which she said to me every time I bought a new (laughs) TV over the last 25 years. I think I'd finally get to the point where I'd say, yeah, 140 inches, you're probably right, that is too big. But there's got to be a better solution. One of the things that happens with the TV is obviously the further away you get from the TV, the bigger you need it to be. You go to the cinema, you've got a huge screen there for you to look at at the cinema, but you're obviously sitting further away, unless you're like me, and you like sitting at the front and go side to side with your face <laughs> and really get immersed in the actual movie. Well, you've got to get your neck muscles down working there. And yeah, why not? It's a full workout. Yeah. It is. So... Rather than sit a few metres away from a TV, why not get really close? And I'm talking about 
up on your face. Put some glasses on that simulate a 140-inch TV. Now this is what? the latest. This is the latest coming out from a particular company at the moment that's just released a new pair of glasses, and they say the equivalent viewing is that of a 140-inch TV. You put the glasses on, you plug it into your viewing device, and sit back and enjoy the view. And get your square eyes going. Yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> so can you just imagine that? You put it on, and rather than sit in your lounge room because that's where you sit there and watch the TV, you go to another room in the house. Go to the kitchen, lay in the bedroom, go out in the outside deck and enjoy the outside surroundings while you sit there and watch your favourite TV show. Now, they're actually quite slim for something that packs so much viewing pleasure. If you look at something like, for example, a set of AR or an AR headset, it's pretty big and bulky. You've got a lot of technology built in and then this big core that trails down and off Mm. it runs and plugs into whatever device you're using and they get a bit hot and sweaty they're a bit gunky actually when you take them off and hand it to someone else to have a go it's a bit disgusting there you're wiping the sweat off with these they're actually relying on the device it plugs into to provide all the picture quality and the power so when you look at them they look like just a slightly chunky pair of glasses a bit like a big set of uh, maybe sunglasses they've got speakers built into the arm so you're getting the sound right next to to, straight to the ear so you've got full stereo sound and it's only been made possible by the fact that you've got such good technology in the glass themselves so it's a micro led so essentially each glass simulates a hdr viewing screen but the micro led is a secret here if you couldn't get those pixels small enough it would be hopeless being close to your eye because obviously it would just be blurry the the images or the pixels would be too large but the fact they can get those pixels so small now you can sit there and watch these glasses i tell you what i'm 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 just getting visions here now of a whole bunch of naughty year eight students showing up to class with these suspicious diagnoses of myopia (laughs) um yeah sorry no sir i've got new these new glasses i've just got to wear them during class that's right and then they (laughs) burst out laughing or get a grin on their face during the class (laughs) (laughs) are these year nine boys again is this your problem is that the problem area Oh, the curse of every teacher in the <laughs> world, right. aren't they? Yeah. So there's a few other things that I found interesting. One of the things that I got excited by in this concept is that not only can you watch TV, but anything that you need a 140-inch screen for. So now we're talking about a computer monitor. And back in the old days when we used to have those things called planes and you'd fly from place to place, I used to always be that really annoying person who'd get on the plane and I'd pull out my notebook, I'd say hello to the person next to me and then start working on my notebook. But it was always a little piddly screen compared to what I have in my office, so that was a bit of a struggle. And you'd always get these sticky big eyes, the person (laughs) next to you, maybe the person behind you. And I didn't have the codes for nuclear weapons or something on my screen, but it just felt a bit, mate, Got something better to look at? (laughs) This is my screen. So it was probably pretty boring. It's probably answering some emails or something as simple as that. So now you're going to be sitting there staring into space, though. It's just staring into space and typing away on your keyboard, just tapping away. And And people would go, what is that crazy (laughs) person over there doing? And why is he staring at me? And the thing I started to do the calculations for was how many rows and columns in a spreadsheet could I fit into a 140-inch screen? Because just imagine the spreadsheet you could look at (laughs) while you're on the plane looking through these glasses. It's a really interesting development and something that I think we'll see a lot more of. And they're incredibly cheap. We talk about 140-inch TV. We're starting to talk about 50 grand minimum, probably $100,000. You talk about these, they're less than $1,000 for a pair of glasses that effectively gives you that. Now, I understand that in your lounge room when you're all sitting around watching TV together, it mightn't be that enjoyable that everyone's sitting there watching their own thing, but at $1,000 or less than $1,000 each, you can buy a few 
to yeah. give you the equivalent of a 140-inch screen on your actual wall. The other part is they've got a USB-C connector, so anything that outputs a video signal on USB-C, you can plug into these glasses. So nothing fancy required, just mm. something that outputs USB-C. So that can be an iPad, that can be a computer, that can be a set-top box. So any sort of device that puts out USB-C video signal, you can have with these. So really interesting yeah. development. <laughs> and literally, guys, we are going to get ourselves a set of four eyes if we're not careful. Well, bigger screens, smaller screens, it's all down to personal choice and personal needs. Folks, my eyesight's not getting any better with this remote teaching gig. Bigger is better. IT is coming to the rescue for elderly people, particularly those with dementia. Matt, talk us through the sort of therapy that tablet computers are bringing for people with dementia. Well, we've gone from one extreme to the other, haven't yeah, we? We've wow. gone from a pair of glasses that simulate a 140-inch <laughs> screen TV. Screen. And yeah. now we've gone to, or we're going to now to dementia patients. And over in Essex, they're trying a trial in an aged care facility. And there are people there with dementia. And they've tried giving them tablets, normal tablets to use to either play some games on or just do something to keep their mind a little bit active, just to mm-hmm. try and hold off the onset of that dementia or the progress of that dementia. And they found they've been a little bit hard for them to use, a bit small, a bit fiddly, can't move things around on screen easy, sometimes they're a bit shaky. And so they've almost decided, let's shelve this idea, it's of no use. Then someone came up with the idea of oversizing. Why don't we take that little tablet and make it a 40-inch screen? So they've now started developing the same concept as a tablet, but on a 40-inch screen. It's a bit easier for people to move around on screen. It's a bit easier for them to drag it around. If they're a bit shaky, it doesn't have to be quite as accurate where it goes. Yeah, you don't have to worry about those fine motor skills, and and you've got that problem-solving factor that you can still do, you know, so the the brain's still ticking. That's right. um, But the fine motor skills aren't as as necessary. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right. And even simple things. I saw one interview with a lady who talked about painting. She said she loves to paint, but in the real-world painting, she Mm. makes a complete mess. So the aged care facility doesn't really like her painting because there's this complete mess that she makes. Oh, poor thing. Yeah, That's right. And yeah. you can imagine going back to kindergarten when we used to have those little backward shirts on us, our aprons, <laughs> and they would be a complete mess. Imagine that at an aged care facility with yeah. people making that mess. She's now using paint by numbers. So she's got a little tool that she uses or an app on her oversized tablet and it's got a picture on there that's a black and white image yeah my wife uses this all the time and it's excellent therapy yeah you're just adding color to these little shapes yeah and you end up with this work of art at the end it's absolutely so she's doing paint by numbers she enjoys it just as much as painting as normal painting but the beauty is she doesn't make a mess and she's getting some stimulation and doing something she enjoys a whole range of different outcomes i think you can get from it but it really is just one of those things we're developing technology in so many different ways I wouldn't have thought of a tablet. One of the things I like about a tablet is it's nice and convenient to pick up and walk out the door with. A 40-inch tablet, I would have said, why would I want that? But here's an example where a 40-inch tablet is incredibly useful. Surprising how um, people come up with innovative solutions to to common problems. Now, Matt, I feel like we need a special soundbite for this next bit, a signal to come uh, before you bring on one of these types of stories. I know it's important for us to be forewarned, but there is no joy coming up here. Banks and other organisations, folks, are constantly telling us that we need two-factor authentication for security. Hackers are now using mirroring apps to see our text and then bypassing two-factor authentication security. We're constantly being hacked into, Matt. What do we do? We are. And we did have one week, James, where we did it as a hack-free week. Yeah. But I think that's been the only week. It was because refreshing. It, it was refreshing. <laughs> but it is such a big issue. And we did talk last week about Flubot and how much of an impact that's had across the world. And that's exactly one of the things that Flubot does. It does a mirroring app. So essentially, you're sitting there waiting for your text to come through from the bank and the second that you see it, someone somewhere else has seen it as well if you've been infected with that malware. So we think two-factor authentication is pretty good, 
but they're constantly finding now that people are still being hacked into despite the fact that the banks have got two-factor. And I must admit that Aussie banks are probably dragging the chain a little bit here. We've got two-factor authentication, but the big four Aussie banks in particular rely on that almost exclusively. But what you're seeing overseas, and I think some banks here in Australia are doing it, what you're seeing overseas is there are three things when you talk about security. One of the things is know something. So you know a password, for example. So there's one factor authentication. The second thing is be somebody. So that is maybe a fingerprint, maybe an eye scan. And the third thing is have something. Now, in this case, we're talking about have something being your mobile phone, so you get your text. But key fobs are often used as well, and that's your have something. And I'm not necessarily saying that we need to go to three-factor authentication, but at least the second factor might be something that's a bit harder for someone to access, i.e. one of those fobs. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've got one of those. Uh, actually, okay. yeah, I've had that for, oh, it's got to be 15 years now. Wow. I've been banking. Uh, it's a smaller bank. And I actually thought it was a bit painful, a bit annoying. Yeah, there I'm on the laptop up in the, you know, the bedroom just doing a bit of banking, and then I've got to go downstairs and grab that bloody fob because I've got to make a transaction here. But I'm actually impressed that the bank you use actually does have that fob because one of the things is that that's something I think we'll see a lot more of. So the annoyance factor, and this is the balance, isn't it? The annoyance factor versus the security factor. It's yeah. annoying having to go and get that fob, but gee, I'm glad I have to go and get that fob because it makes yeah. me feel more secure. And those fobs are actually just really accurate watches. The way they work is that at the other end, at the server end, there will be a clock because it's able to keep the time accurately via an internet connection, for example, or it might just have a, a really accurate clock on board. And every minute, for example, it will generate a new number. And that fob that you have that you think is just a little fob that sits there and you throw it in the bottom of the drawer is an incredibly accurate clock. It's got no connection to the server that it has to generate the same time code as. It's actually generated a new number and it knows when one minute has ticked over and it generates another new number. If it gets out of sync in terms of the time on it, then it's generating a new number that's a minute behind the number that you have created at the other end. So I'm impressed that it's been going. I have no idea how those things work. That's amazing. Yeah, so there's no outside connection with it. But if you've had that for 15 years without being replaced, I assume, that's incredibly impressive because normally those things are replaced maybe every five years because they slowly lose time and then it goes out of sync. Now, if it did, just a little hint here, if you ever do find that that number doesn't work, just wait for time to go past and a new number comes up and then if it's lost time or has gone forward in time, uh, yeah. you could change, you, you could try can work it. it out. Yeah, you could yeah. try a, a number on either side of when it was actually done to see whether or not that code works. So if the one that's right now doesn't work, then the one after or the one before might be the one that actually works. Yeah, yeah, but, gotcha. but most of the time they're incredibly accurate, so you don't need to do that. But there's a bit of a push at the moment. I've got a bit off topic there, sorry, but there's a bit of a push at the moment <laughs> to try and get some of the banks in particular, because that's the big thing that most hackers are after is our money, try and get some of those banks to use something a bit better than SMS authentication. And even though we think SMS authentication is pretty good, it is pretty basic. And I think we'll see some solutions coming up in the near future that will be a lot better than two-factor authentication like that fob or other things. When we start to get to the stage where it is our eye scan or it is a fingerprint scan, other things rather than just a text and just a password. Well, I was actually excited when we had the um, the SMS messages sent through because I've often got my phone by my side there. So well, that was nice and easy, but now you've just killed that for me. <laughs> Sorry about and, that. And um, I'm going back to the frustration, but frust- frustration but satisfaction, I think, that... Uh, they're a little bit safer using that. And, yeah. and may, it may well be, I did say before, I don't think we're aiming for three-factor, but may it may well be in the future mm. that two-factor is seen as so yesterday and you now need three-factor. You might need your SMS and your FOB and your password or your fingerprint and one of those other things that might be three-factors that we end up with. I just have faith that in the future there's going to be no bad guys that want to steal my money.
There you are, dreaming lockdown again. (laughs) It's been a long lockdown. Technology continues to come to the fore for sufferers of chronic disease. And recent developments have brought some great news for people with diabetes. Matt, I've got a mate who wears this belt pack that continually monitors his blood sugar levels and doses him with insulin automatically. But this new tech is a step above that. I've seen those as well, the same one that you're talking about with your friend. And I find that pretty interesting. It helps people manage their insulin levels in quite a reasonable way. But if they want to go for a swim, for example, then Mm. it's a bit hard to use and it's a bit clumsy to make sure you've always got it with you. So the next best thing is to not have it sitting on the outside of your body, but why not stick it on the inside of your body? And that presents a few other problems, which we'll address as we go (laughs) forward. First thing is getting it in there. So they open you up and they put it in there, a very small hole, I'm assuming. It's a fairly small unit they put inside you. And they put it outside your stomach, but inside your skin. The first thing is, it's got batteries inside. So do you get it replaced with opening up your body and stick a couple of new batteries in there? Make sure we get those good quality ones, because we want them to last a bit longer. (laughs) But no, they've come up with a better solution. We've talked about wireless charging and a whole range of different ways in the past. And so the first thing they do is they wirelessly charge it. So when you're ready to charge, you put something against the skin near where the device is and it charges it up wirelessly. Shut the front door. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so charge the battery, that's, that's problem solved. That's problem solved. And that's a pretty good little solution, but we're already familiar with that. The second thing is, obviously, for it to work, it needs some insulin inside it. Now, yeah. I imagine you could put a huge container somewhere inside your body and say, there you go, you've got the next years worth of dosage or five years worth of dosage and we'll open you up. That's going to run out. That's going to run out eventually. (laughs) They thought, surely we can do better than this. So they came up with an idea. A cannula goes inside your stomach, so it goes through the stomach wall and sits there. And when you want to recharge your device with insulin, you take a pill that's got some metallic properties to it. It's got insulin inside it. When it goes down to your stomach, it's attracted to this cannula that's inside your stomach. What? And somehow, by some... Bit of magic, and I haven't been able to work this part out. It takes the insulin from inside that capsule into the device and then slowly releases it into your body as you need it. No way. (laughs) So I don't know. I haven't been able to work out that part there, and maybe there's some patent on that that they don't release the exact details of that. But this will be the future for someone suffering from diabetes. Is anyone wearing this now, or is it? Pigs. Oh, pigs, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a whole lot of testing being going on with animals. No one yet from a human species has fronted up to do it, and I think there's part of the regulatory process there at this stage. But I'm sure there'll be people who'll be very keen to do it. You'll have some surgery, not pleasant, but not too bad a surgery. You put that in, and then as long as you remember to take your pill on a semi-regular basis and charge it up on a semi-regular basis, that's it. And of course, the most exciting part is it's got Bluetooth. So anything that's got any value at all has got to have Bluetooth. So it's got Bluetooth, so you can look at your app and you can see exactly what it's doing. You can see your insulin levels. You can see how charged it is. All the facilities that are inside you, you can get access to via your phone. This sort of technology, you think about it, James, the wireless charging, the Bluetooth connection, even the pill that you take, go back 10 years ago and say to someone, I need a device that does all this stuff. And people say, you're dreaming. You're talking about way in the future, but it's it's here now. Yeah, wow. My goodness, uh, the future is a very interesting place. Just changing the subject right now. One solution for running out of charge in your EV when you're out of reach of an extension cord, for example, is a battery swap, right? Except we're not worried about AA batteries here. We've got big batteries. Where are you going to stash a spare battery for your car? It's one of those things that we think, surely this is so obvious. 
you effectively, when you fill up with a petrol station, you're just recharging the petrol with a whole new bunch of petrol. Why don't we just have a whole new bunch of battery to stick into a car somewhere? And someone sent me a video, and I love when people send me some of the different things they find, and it's all technology-related, so they think I'm interested, which I am. They sent me a video from 1943, and it said, this is the future of taxis. And they had this taxi put into a service station, in inverted commas, and they popped off the bonnet, and a little crane came over, lifted up this massive battery out of the front of it, (laughs) took it away, put another battery in, and the taxi went all in the space of a couple of minutes, and they said... This is the future of taxis. You'll swap a battery as you go with your electric taxi. And I don't know whether it's a complete G-up or whether it was something that was released at the time, but I looked at that and I went, wow. They were 80 years ahead of their time. Absolutely. And so there's a company now called Ample. They've raised $160 million so far, and it's all on the promise of doing a battery swap. The first problem they've got is the hardest problem they've got, standardization. When you've Mm. got... Tesla out there and Nissan out there and Hyundai out there and VW and every other manufacturer across the world doing batteries, they're all installing the batteries, not in a way that's easy to swap them out and in. And most of the, well, I think all the manufacturers that I've seen put the batteries down low, low centre of gravity, car handles better. So to do a battery swap, it's not like pop open the bonnet and do a battery swap. Somehow you'd have to have the base of the car be able to drop out and then another base of the car drop in or slide up in. Seems pretty involved. It does seem pretty involved. I can imagine you could do it as long as you had some control over the standard. So if you could say to all the manufacturers, make your batteries this by this in terms of the number of metres and make the release capsule or the way it's released this sort of release capsule, you could have a fairly automated service station that you'd pull up to, you'd pull over a module and then up underneath, one would come and take one away and another one would come up and away it would go. I'm dreaming at the moment because none of that is happening. But Ample, again, they've raised $160 million on this promise. They believe that they can come up with the idea of doing battery swap and getting to that point where people were pulling with their cars. Now, at the moment, they're focused on commercial, and they see that as a sweet spot, whether it be commercial delivery trucks, whether it be commercial trucks, but they think they've got more access to deliver a standard rather than in a normal motor vehicle. But if they can get the standard working for larger vehicles, delivery trucks, vans, that type of thing, then I can see that consumers will say, yeah, "Yeah, why don't I do it for my car as well? I think it's something that we're seeing in China a little bit. So there's a startup called NIO, N-I-O, and they've basically demanded in China that they come up with a national standard for electric vehicles made in China. So if Chinese manufacturers, and obviously China having so much in terms of the market share numbers-wise across the world, if they can get it right, maybe just by the fact that China does it, there might be an international standard. Wow. (laughs) That's impressive. So just pulling up to a a recharge station and I'll just flip out the battery and flip in a new one. Oh, goodness me. Changing the subject one more time. With three teenage sons, it comes as no surprise to me that gaming consoles and companies have been going ballistic with sales with this pandemic running. But for the good people at Nintendo, the pandemic has brought an unprecedented boom, which is really saying something because Nintendo has been growing and growing and growing, hasn't it, Matt? It has been. The Switch, the Nintendo Switch, which I know my son's got a Switch and I've played on that a bit and I don't mind the concept. They've sold 89 million units to become the fifth best-selling home console ever. Now, keep in mind that the PlayStation 3, for example, it took 11 years for the PlayStation 3 to sell 89 Mm. million units. The Switch has been out for four years. So they think Mm. by next year, by March next year, they'll break through the 100 million units sold. 
on its way, maybe it won't reach there, but on its way to the DS. The old DS sold 150 million units. And it was pretty basic. The DS didn't do anything too fancy, but it was a gaming console. And I can remember when people had the DS, it was pretty cool if you had one of those DS units. Yeah, yeah, sure. But again, we look back at that now and we go, really? People played on that? bit like the Tamagotchi we've spoken about before. <laughs> you did that? You spent hours on that? How did you do that? But the Switch is actually pretty good. But Nintendo have said that there is this huge gaming console boom and Nintendo is seeing it, Sony is seeing it, Microsoft is seeing it. So they're all seeing this boom. But again, with Chippergeddon, you just find that they just can't actually meet the demand out there. Mm. At the moment, the $100 million by next year, if they could get enough units out there, you'd see those numbers go up. And certainly anyone that can get hold of the latest PlayStation or the latest Xbox, they're doing very well because they're they're near impossible to get. Falling off the shelves. Well, they disappearing, off, evaporating. They are evaporating off the shelves, and so anyone that's trying to get one of those, it's very difficult. But look, Nintendo, they've had a few hits and misses over the years. Sometimes they come up with a product which doesn't go so well. The Wii U is what I'm looking at right there. The Wii U is like <laughs> that's a bit one disaster. that we've got. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, sorry. No, 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 keep going. But but that was one. And again, I suppose with any company that's been around for a number of years, not everything is a hit for them. But certainly, I think Nintendo have been up there is one of the leaders in gaming consoles for many years and we're just seeing more of those numbers going through the roof at the moment that's so interesting but you know what a time for for gaming console companies yeah just amazing uh, the amount of time that my sons deliver to them is amazing yeah and, and i think one of the things is in lockdowns like we're seeing at the moment you do get a bit of a two-speed economy you'll see some organizations some companies really suffer and i'm thinking airlines here who'd want to be the ceo mm, of an airline yeah, at the moment yeah. Maybe they'll start flying again by December. It was March last year that we started this whole process. So, gee, what a tough gig for those guys. And then you'll see other companies like gaming console manufacturers who say, fantastic, bring on a lockdown every week as far as we're concerned. I'm sure they don't think that, but for their sales figures, it actually helps them dramatically. Anti-theft security devices that immobilise car engines were a bit of a revolution when they came out about 20 years ago. But now we're seeing more home invasions, Matt. Because these blighters are doing what? <laughs> oh, it's sad, isn't it? I didn't actually realise, James, that back in 2001, every car that came into Australia, it was then mandatory to start putting a transponder in the actual keys. Yeah. So that was Caught a... me off guard. <laughs> you <had> some <laughs> I've got some stories there, but anyway, keep going, yeah. So in 2001, they said, we want to try and reduce car thefts because car thefts were going through the roof. And you see the old movies where someone just comes along and puts their elbow through the window. I reckon that'd be a, a tough gig in the first place. Those side windows are pretty hard to smash. Yeah. But anyway, they're pretty tough elbows on actors. So they yeah. put the elbow through the window, jump in, pull a few wires out from underneath the dash, a couple together, there's an obligatory spark that goes off and then sure. off they go. Yeah. And they've got away from the bad guys or chasing the bad guys, whichever it may be, in record time. You can't do that in a car that's been sold in Australia since 2001 because the transponder in your key actually needs to communicate with a transponder, usually in the fuel pump or in some other part of the ignition system, which obviously will change with electric vehicles, but it has to communicate with another part of the car for it to actually work. So put those wires together, that's great, but unless that fuel pump sees a transponder within the near vicinity, that car ain't going nowhere. Yeah, wow. But Boom. that's great. That means car theft has gone down, and it has. The stats say that there's been a 60% drop in car thefts since 2001. So that sounds fantastic. Problem solved, transponders, everything's all good. Except now what people are doing is invading homes. They're coming into people's homes because they know they can't just hotwire a car. And most of the time, 
cars are used for another crime. So when a car is stolen, the stats that show about 70% of the time that a car is stolen, it's used to commit some other crime somewhere. Right. So they're not just stealing a car because they want to be able to drive around. They can't get to work, for example. They're stealing that car for some specific reason. So now they're committing one crime, breaking into someone's home to then go and commit the other crime, crime which is case. the main target of their crime. Ah, and when they want that car, they're going to get that car. That's right. So the advice here, I suppose, is don't leave the keys visible. Someone puts their keys on the kitchen table or they've got a hook somewhere or they hook all their keys up. Someone looks through the window of the house. Great. There's the keys for the car. Break into the house. Steal mm. the keys. Go into the garage. Get in the car. Off they go. Ha! Transponder. I showed you, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> the scary part of all that, of course, is... I wouldn't want to be in my home if my home was home invaded or had a, a theft from my home because who knows how that thief might react, who knows how I might react in that situation. So it's, it's a pretty scary situation overall. So you don't want to be there. Let's just not give the ammunition to the thieves by showing off the keys. Let's hide them somewhere a bit safer. This is all changing as we go forward because now there are cars on the market. I've got one that I don't have a key for. I have a mobile phone. To steal my car, you need to steal my phone then get past the unlock code with my face or my fingerprint, whatever it might be, and then get into the car and then drive off, thieves are going to go, oh, he's got one of those cars that needs a mobile phone to start it. I'm going next door. <laughs> Sorry to my neighbours. Until they find out a way to get the details off your phone. Oh, jeepers. Hollywood predictions dating back to the 40s and 50s had us all in fully automated homes by now. I've got myself a smart home device to listen into our conversations, but I still think we're not quite fully automated, Matt, although we're not too far from fully automation. Well, the problem is standards. We're talking about these standards again. So you might buy your home automation devices that are adhering to the Apple Home standard, or they might communicate with Google's product or Amazon's Alexa but there doesn't seem to be any way of getting all those different guys just to have a friendly chat with each other. Mm. And so this is the problem, but we're seeing a company or an organisation now called Matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, and their aim is to bring all these together and have a nice, friendly conversation. Now, I'm not sure whether they want to be in the middle of that conversation, so therefore taking a little bit of money along the way, or whether they just want to create some sort of international standard, but it makes a lot of sense because if you make a decision to go in one certain direction with your home automation, you're stuck. You've got to keep mm. going in that direction. And if you wire your house from the very beginning, and the house we're sitting in right now was wired from the beginning when I built this place with home automation in mind, if I want to do anything different, I've got to come up with some way of making what I did in the initial stage with this house talk to those other devices. So I've done that in certain areas, but I've had to put in devices that basically are an interconnection between the standards that I used and the new standards that are coming out now. So it makes it really complicated. But what Matter is trying to do is to say, everything that comes out in the future, why don't we make it all just so it can talk to each other? And I think of the example of when cars were first coming out and petrol was around, imagine going to a service station that only supported car A and car B, but if you had brand C, well, sorry, that's not this petrol station, go up the road somewhere. Mm. And it's a bit like that with houses at the moment. You decide on one standard, you're stuck with that standard going forward. Yeah, and, you know, people buy gifts for you. And so <laughs> when the gift isn't the, the brand that you uh, were looking for, um, yeah, you it becomes, have, we have to re-gift it then, I guess. Oh, you? re-gift it, perfect. That's a good way to get out of it. And you talk about some of the, the Hollywood movies and you've seen some where everything's controlled by home automation devices. Yeah, well, I've seen clips like you were talking about before, the home of the future, you know, that sort of thing. You know? Yeah, and the problem is that smart home devices have been around for a while, but some research out of the US said that only... 36% of US households that have got broadband connected have any home devices at all. 
And I think the reason for that is that people go, it's all too hard. I really want to go down this path. I love the idea of being able to change the channel on my TV by telling my device to do it. Oh, but it's too hard to make the decision. And they get to that point where they freeze on their indecision because they don't know which standard is the one that's going mm. to take over and rule the world, mm. so they make no decision. So if they can get this nailed... I understand that, yeah. Yeah, if they can get this nailed, I think there'll be more activity. So it's good for all of those devices. So rather than trying to compete and be the leader, rather than Amazon or rather than Google trying to say, we're going to win this market, if they all talk to someone like Matter and say, let's get a common standard, I think all of their sales will go up because people will feel more comfortable not backing the wrong horse. And who wants to have the beta <laughs> video cassette recorder when everyone else is bringing around VHS cassettes? All those people with beta cassette recorder still still in their garages, um, still <laughs> claiming that it was the, and that's the same technology thing, isn't it? of the future. Which, yeah. which video recorder do I buy? Do I buy a beta or VHS? If I pick the wrong horse, oh no. And that's where we are with home automation. By the way, if you've got a beta or VHS video recorder, um, it's no good for you anymore. <laughs> anyway, get rid of it. Tech developers are a creative bunch and, and some are working hard on some very innovative methods and materials for reducing climate change. But finding big solutions for the problem is proving to be more than a big deal. Well, how about a new fabric to reflect the sun's rays? Could that help? Matt, I'm a bit sceptical, but tell us more about this. Well, it's flipping it around. It's, it's what I call swimming upstream. So much of what we're doing with climate change is focused on how do we produce less carbon dioxide in producing the power that we need. So that seems like the obvious way to solve climate change. But if we flip that over, if we need less power, maybe we don't need to burn as much coal and therefore we produce fewer amounts of carbon dioxide in our society. And yeah, that's right. well, exactly... That sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. But it, it's a tougher gig, I think. But that's exactly what they're talking about here. This metafabric, and I know it's impressive because it's got the word nano in it. It's got nanoparticles. <laughs> so if you're going to do oh, anything... It's going to divide people. <laughs> you either love it or you hate it, nanoparticles. Oh. I think you're right. If you're going to have anything at the moment, though, it's got to have the word nano in it because it can't be modern and progressive and innovative without the word nano. So this has got nanoparticles in it that actually reflect light and heat. And they did an experiment where they had someone in a T-shirt. Half the T-shirt was cotton and half the T-shirt was this new metafabric. And they actually just measured body temperature. And they found that on the side with the metafabric, five degrees cooler and the body temperature rather than on wow. the on the cotton. So, and normally I think of cotton as being a nice fabric to wear. It helps keep you cool a little bit. But this metafabric not just for people, but getting to the stage where they might cover other things with it as well. Can you use this same fabric on the side of a building, for example, to reduce the amount of heat coming into the building, therefore reducing the amount of air conditioning you need, yeah, therefore right. reducing the amount of carbon dioxide we produce in producing that power? So it's a long bow. I'm kind of with you a bit. I'm a bit sceptical as well. It seems like, yeah, you might be able to just make a 0.001% difference in the amount of carbon dioxide we produce. I'm probably more interested in it from an individual perspective perspective, wearing it as an individual rather than reducing the amount of heat that we might or cooling we might need in a house. Well, I think, um, yeah, one of the things here is that science might come up with material, but the consumers will find uh, a way to turn it into a product, yeah? yeah? I think you're absolutely spot on. What products are out there? People will produce a number of products. The one that sells, which is the one that consumers are effectively voting for, will be the way it goes. So mm. if they use this metafabric to cover buildings or to make t-shirts or to make hats or to make little igloos that you put at the beach to stay cool when you're sitting at the beach... The one that sells well will be the one that we'll see go forward and in five years' time we'll all be talking about the nanoparticles in our metafabric because that product is the one that's taken off. Yeah, 
Yeah, very cool. And on that note, folks, we tie a bow around another episode of Tech Talk with Matt Dickerson. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, James, and to all our listeners. Keep doing the right thing by us. Keep subscribing, keep rating, keep reviewing, and keep telling your friends. It seems to be going fantastic, and the feedback we get is really positive. So that's good. Never a better time to have a podcast going easier than in lockdown because people are looking for things to do, and why not look at technology? Yeah, exactly. Another absolute cracker of an episode for the fans. Uh, I've been your host, James Eddy, wishing you good health and cyber safety. Tune in again next week.